Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it and turn. We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning. Acts 14. While you're turning there, I'll tell you about a conversation that I was made aware of uh, this week between two financial advisors having lunch here in Indianapolis. One of them, uh, Mike, said to his friend Joe, kind of asked him a question like, hey, how's your health, man? I know things haven't been great. Uh, thought you were getting better, but how are things going? And he, you know, he replied, well, actually, the stomach issues I was having, they flared back up and I'm losing sleep. I'm just really worried about the stock market, everything that's been going on in the country. It's just like really worrying me. So I'm losing sleep, stomach problems. And so I went and saw my doctor. He's like, man, what did the doctor tell you? He said, well, the doctor told me, hey, because of everything going on in my health, I need to go ahead and hire for myself a professional worrier. I need somebody to do all of my worrying for me. Uh, So that's exactly what I did, man. And um, I jumped online, read a bunch of profiles, did a lot of research, and I found the right person I thought was the right. And so I paid $100,000, and now this guy does all of my worrying for me. His friend's like, man, I didn't even know it was a thing. Are you kidding me? Like, so you hire somebody, they do all the worrying for you, and, and then how in the world can you afford $100,000? He said, well, you know, I don't know, man. I'm letting him worry about that for me. So, now, corny joke, let it sink in for a second. But wouldn't it be nice? I mean, wouldn't it be really nice to all the struggles that we've got, worry or anything else, that we could just kind of hand it off and not have it kind of pulling us down? Now, I know you're thinking, too, like maybe this is a Jesus thing, like he's going to Jesus juke it. He's going to say, yes, we are going to get to Jesus because he is the solution. But like right now, just feeling some of the things that you're going through, man, they're hard. It's difficult. And they worry us and they, they kind of pull us down. And this is what this text is going to tell us this morning. One of the things in Acts 13 and 14 Uh, that has stuck out to me more than anything else in any other time I've studied it or read is the consistent theme of what it really means to worship Jesus. Now, admittedly, in the past, I've gone to Acts 13 and 14 and kind of just read past them. Because Acts 15, things start to heat up a little bit. Acts 16, the action really kicks in. But 13 and 14 haven't always been chapters I go to. In fact, I say to you, tell me about Acts 13 and 14 right now. And many of us would say, ah, Acts 13 and 14, I'm not sure. And so we jumped in last week as we're walking through the book of Acts, and we learned that uh, Paul, with two of his friends, Barnabas and John Mark, they were commissioned by the Holy Spirit and sent out from the church to go and start what we now call missionary journeys. And this first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 takes place. Uh, They leave commissioned, and they arrive in a town. And what their custom was, typically... Paul would go into a town and he would approach the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was a place where all the Jewish people would come and listen to teaching and they would worship. And so he knew if I can get in there and I can begin to uh, discern with them the meaning of the scriptures, I'm going to have a good foundation if some of them become Christians to start the church. And so that's really what he wanted to do in each of these towns. And you see that as a pattern throughout the book of Acts. The first place he'll go if they have a synagogue is into the synagogue. And so he and Barnabas go in, and they listen as the synagogue leaders read the text. And we looked at that last week. Uh, They get done reading, and they look over, which I think they live to regret. They looked over at Paul, and they said, hey, do you have anything you'd like to share? Remember, Paul's a Pharisee of Pharisees, had a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding. So they look to him, and they say, hey, would you like to share anything? And he sure did. He stood up, and he preached an entire message uh, about Jesus. Some of them were intrigued. Others were frustrated. And they formed a group of people that really didn't like him, and they ran him out of town. And the text told us there at the end of chapter 13 that he wiped the dust off of his feet, and he was on to the next town. 
You get to Acts chapter 14, and he, he does the same thing. He arrives in town, and he goes into a synagogue, and he begins to reason, and it says a large amount of people became Christians, and a short, a very small amount of those people were really mad about that. And so then they went and got other people, and this crowd arose, and they came in, and they even convinced the Jews and the Gentiles who had become Christians or were listening to the gospel and uh, getting ready to become Christians not to, and the whole town turned against him. That, the entire town was divided, and they ran him out of town, threatening to kill him. And so now he leaves town again, and we're, this is where we're going to pick up this morning uh, in verse 8 here in just a second. But you're going to notice when he gets into town here, uh, these two different audiences, and this is important. The first audience that the Apostle Paul would have dealt with in this first missionary journey is what we're gonna, we would call a monotheistic group of people. So in the synagogue, uh, they were monotheistic. They believed in one God. And they had a framework of understanding what I'm going to call the Bible, but for, for you to understand, it was the Old Testament. So these Jews knew their Old Testament. They had a framework for the Bible, and they believed in one God. And so Paul would come in, and he would use that understanding. He met them right where they were. And the message, hey, you are a sinner in need of God's grace. But now he comes in Acts chapter 14 to another culture. In fact, there's only two times in the entire book of Acts where you're going to see a sermon that is directed toward what we would call pagan people, people that had no clue about God or the Bible. And this is one of those sermons where he's going to approach a group of people that are polytheistic. So you have the monotheistic people. Now you're going to have polytheistic people. And the polytheists, they believe in multiple gods. As a matter of fact, the audience Paul's going to be speaking to had a God for just about everything. They had a God for the weather. They had a God for the crops. They had a God for uh, sex and relationships and money. I mean, they just believed all kinds of different things. And this is the group that Paul is now going to go and share the gospel with. And what you see is a lot of things. We're going to learn a lot from this passage. But you really see how Paul differed in his approach to these two different audiences. And you're going to be able to pick up on, okay, how do I share the gospel with people that have no framework of the Bible and believe all kinds of different things? And then how would I go to someone who is a monotheist? They believe in one God and the Bible. And how do I work with them? And so he approaches this two different ways. Let's see how it kind of plays out for him. Acts chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 8. In Lystra, the town where they had arrived, there was a man who was lame. Um, so he's paralyzed. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. So as Paul approaches the city of Lystra, he's probably near the front gates. We pick up on other clues in the text about that. So walking into the city around the front gate, and there's this man who's paralyzed. He's paralyzed from birth. He's never walked. And he's sitting there, and more than likely, he's begging. And a couple things stand out as you're reading this that I find pretty fascinating, and I hope you do too. <laughs> uh, if you go back to Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're walking into the temple to participate in prayer. And as they're walking into the temple, they come across what Luke, who's, the, the book of Acts is a history book that, the, that Luke is detailing for his friend Theophilus. And in chapter 3, Luke puts so many details that are so similar to chapter 14. Peter and John walking into the temple to pray, and they see another man who's been paralyzed from birth. And the text says that they see him. Now, these, both of these men in 3 and in 14 would have been begging for money. They would have rarely, if ever in their life, made eye contact with people. They had no dignity. The culture had stripped the dignity from them, and they were left to beg in order to survive. Peter and John stop, and Peter, before he does any healing, the text tells us, Luke points this out and says, he commands the man to look at him. Look at me in my eyes. 
Well, right here we just read that the Apostle Paul begins to preach and, and teach, and a crowd kind of forms, and this lame man looks directly at him. So Paul and this man make eye contact. What I find is fascinating is this. When we do ministry, we are all called to be ministers. All followers of Jesus are called to go and do ministry. As we go, we bring truth. Yes, that's what Paul was doing. But we must also serve. And the act of proclaiming the truth without serving people cannot be divorced when it comes to following Jesus. We have a saying around here on staff. We just say tables and chairs. And the, the concept is you, no matter what your position in this church, you are never above setting up tables and chairs. Ministry is always about people. It's always about serving people. And you see this modeled right here. Paul didn't have to heal this man. He could have gone on preaching. He could have gone on, but he took compassion upon him. The other thing is this, that ministry is not a performance. You see Peter and John and you see Paul and Barnabas in both of these instances walking into this town and they're preaching the gospel, but they stop to take time to heal somebody. See, it was never a performance. Ministry was always about people. It was always about people in the early church. It was never about putting on a show for anybody. It was like, hey, we're going to proclaim the truth, but we're going to meet practical, real needs as well. So they heal this man and it, doesn't, it creates an uproar. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker, which I love that so accurate description of the apostle Paul that he talked a lot. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, which is where they would have been, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So Look, this is a pretty dramatic response to this deal. I, don't, I think it probably startled Paul because he's not used to the fact that when he would do these miracles in a more monotheistic culture, that they would then turn their worship to him. But in this new culture that he's in, this polytheistic culture where they have gods for everything, when they see him heal somebody, that to them means that he's now worthy of worship. And so they begin to want to turn all of the worship toward him. And I think it threw him off. This culture where they had gods for every single thing that you can imagine, and history tells us they had all kinds of myths or stories, we might call them even fairy tales, that were told culturally to promote the continued worship of multiple gods. And so history, historically, we actually can find one of those fairy tales that was told to people all along in their worship of Zeus and Hermes, who these people mistake Paul and Barnabas to be. And the story goes like this. Zeus and Hermes are overseeing a region of the land, and they decide they want to go down into the, uh, among the people to, to figure out, are the people in this town hospitable and kind people? And so they wanted to figure this out, but they can't just like powerfully go down because then everybody would behave. And so they go on a divine undercover boss episode, okay? And they disguise themselves as humans, and they go down among the people, and they go door to door, and they want to see, will people welcome us in? And so Zeus and Hermes, disguised as human beings, they go from one door, and they're denied. They go to the next door, and they're denied. They go to the next door, and they're denied. Finally, they come across a door, they knock on it, and an elderly, poor couple answers the door. And this elderly, poor couple welcome them in. They're hospitable right away. And they say, come on in, and they begin to entertain these guests that they have no idea. Remember, divine undercover boss? They have no clue that it's them, but they're going to entertain them anyway. And so they even take some of their thatch roof, and they start a little fire, and they cook some food for them with what little they had. And as they begin to entertain Zeus and Hermes, unknown to them, they begin to notice that every time they went to pour wine, the wine never dissipated. And that clued them in that this must be 
the gods. And so this elderly couple decides, we got to go all out. We've got the goose out in the back that we've kind of held back a little bit. And we're going to go get the goose, and we're going to cook the goose for our godly guests now. And so they go out, but they can't catch the goose. I'm telling you, this is a real story. They can't catch the goose, and they chase the goose down. They try, and they try. And finally, Zeus and Hermes have had enough, and they just say, that's it. And they reveal who they are. And they were Zeus and Hermes, and it's this incredible moment in this story. And they grant this noble couple one wish. And here's the wish that the, the, the elderly couple wished. They said, we want to be priest and priestess of your temple. And we want to die at the exact same moment. How sweet. And so that's what they do. I added the how sweet part. That's not in the story. So they grant the wish. And they turn, Zeus turns their house into his temple. And this is the story of where they would have said, this is where the temple came from. And he makes them the priest and the priestess of the temple. And many years later, after they've destroyed the entire town for not being hospitalized, as well. They destroy this entire town, but they let these two live a long life. And at the end of their life, they die on the exact same day, and they're made into a pair of intertwining trees. How romantic, right? Could be a chick flick. They're all fairy tales anyway. So <laughs> let that sink in. Sorry. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Uh, <laughs> so this is the story that they would have understood in this town. They would have had this now, they would have known it to be a fairy tale as well. They would have said, no, all that kind of stuff didn't really happen until someone shows up at the city gates and heals somebody. Now, all of a sudden, it's, is this another undercover boss episode? Like, we don't want to be destroyed like they were destroyed, so everybody get hospitable, everybody worship, everybody show your allegiance, and that's what they do. They, they go and they get the bull and they bring everybody out of Zeus's temple, which they thought was that old couple's house originally, and they come out and they begin to worship. Well, Paul this, doesn't like this. He begins to catch on what's going on, and it doesn't sit well with him. Look at how he responds. Um, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, this is verse 14, and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We bring you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all of the nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. You see, he's, he's playing to their understanding. You have gods that do all of this, but the one God is the one who's done all of this. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So as all of this hysteria begins, Luke mentions to us that they were yelling out and worshiping in the Lyconian language. Well, guess who doesn't speak that language? Paul and Barnabas. So they don't speak this language. They're not quite sure how to respond to this. They, so how in the world would they know that they're the ones being worshipped? Well, when the priest of Zeus's temple shows up with a bull and everyone's focused on you, offering it to you, he begins to pick up what's going on. And so then he relies on one of his own customs. In the Jewish culture, to rip your clothes was to show disagreement and grieve. And so he rips his clothes, grieving what they're doing, and cries out to them, friends, why are you doing this? You've missed it. You've missed it. And then he preaches this great little sermon. And in this sermon, he begins to address the fact that they had idols and they couldn't have idols. These idols were going to fail you over and over again. Now, you might look back at that and say, well, I, he didn't mention idols at all. But there's two clues to this. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, he says, we've come to bring you the good news. Don't do what you're doing. We're coming to bring you the good news. So what you're doing doesn't line up with the good news that we want you to hear. So there's a distinction between what they were doing 
and the good news that they were trying to tell him about. This is not what we were trying to say. We tried to bring you good news. What you're doing is not good. The second thing is, he says, we're trying to get you to turn from these worthless things. That phrase, worthless things, literally means empty, deceitful, defeated, failure. And it points to the idea of having something, an idol, that will continue to fail you over and over again. And so he proclaims to them, you need to turn away from all of these worthless idols, these, enti- these horrible things. And notice how he approached it. I mean, when he was with the Jews in the synagogue, his message was, hey, you understand God, you understand the scriptures, you are a sinner in need of grace. And they kind of had a framework to work with that. But here they didn't. Notice in this sermon, he never says the word sin. He never mentions the law. He doesn't quote scripture. Right? He meets them right where they're at. And he begins to tell them about the gospel using a language that they were going to understand. He proclaims this truth to them. It's fascinating. He's not saying, hey, you're a sinner in need of grace. What he's telling them is, you're enslaved to idols and you need a new master. He's essentially saying, all those things you chase after with your life to provide you security and comfort, how's that working out? See, when we see the word idol, when we hear that word, different things might come up in your mind. So let me define it. Like, what is an idol? I mean, some of your minds might go different places. You might think of a small statue that people go and they worship, though that's culturally doesn't fit with where we're at. But you might have heard of people doing idol worship that way or building some, some sort of thing that they worship and and then you think to yourself, man, that's foolish. That's not it. Or some of you might go to like this idea of American Idol and, and how culturally celebrities become more than they should be in this culture. And so people go after that. Or how children innocently look at athletes and musicians and they say, that's my idol. That's who I want to be like. I think Tim Keller has really provided what I believe is one of the best definitions of idolatry. He says this. Here's what an idol is. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything. And I love this part. This is the key that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you, what only God can give you is an idol. And by anything, it's anything. Most of the time when we see idolatry and you hear a sermon on this, you might be thinking about these bad habits or these bad things. 99% of the time I meet with people, the idols in their heart are good things, noble things, honorable things, things that you should put attention into, things that, that should be a part of your life. But you've taken something good and elevated it to a position of being ultimate in your life. You've looked to these things to give you identity or value or security or peace or comfort, and they continually fail you over and over again. And so the question is, as we walk through this, why should I care? I've lived a pretty good life going after the, like, why is it that I should care about these, these idols that might creep up into my heart? And one is because it's the world that you live in. There's so many different things pulling you back and forth, so many different things that want your allegiance, so many different things that want the opportunity to tell you who you should be over and over again. But more than anything, here's why I think you should really be aware, is because idols will always overpromise and underdeliver every single time. An idol will always overpromise and underdeliver. Things that you think, if you could just get to this thing, if I could just have this thing, if I could just arrive at this place, then I'm going to have some sort of a peace. If I could just accomplish this goal, if I could just do these disciplines, if I could just achieve this thing, I'm going to finally have peace, comfort, power, success, value, whatever it is. I almost have to, I don't have to say that. You felt that. You felt that in your life. We've gone after these things and they leave us empty. They have overpromised and underdelivered over and over and over again. 
Or maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I really have an idol because all these good things, I'm not supposed to get rid of all these good things in my life. So maybe they're not to the position of, I don't know if I have an idol. Like Zeus and Hermes, easy, idols. I can identify that. Don't do that. But like in my life, I don't know what has become an idol and what hasn't. So I understand like we, we have to choose Jesus so he can strip these idols away, but how do we even identify him? I'm glad you asked. We came, I came across a, uh, this really fascinating thing, but I gotta give you a disclaimer. What we're about to walk through is really hard. Like, it's, it's not easy at all. And this week, as I went through this myself and began to really do some self-checking, man, it was, it was difficult. And that's hard. It's hard to preach it. It's hard to walk you through it. But man, is it good. If we can just be really honest with ourselves, this, this idle self-check can really help us identify what might have been good in our life that we've elevated to ultimate in our life. And so as I uh, call these out, I'm going to have you stand if it's one of yours. I'm kidding. <laughs> We're not doing that. <laughs> You're like, what kind of church? Uh, what we're going to do is uh, you, you're just going to reflect on this. You can pull out your phone and take a picture of the screen because they're going to, the list will build on the screen and you can think about this later. We can send it out to you later as well. The other thing that you can do is uh, just write down something. I mean, write down this question, fill in the blanks. Okay, let's, let's walk through this. Idle, self-check. Fill in this blank. The thing I'd be most worried about losing is blank. It's hard. For me, most of the time I fill that blank out with my family. And it's, it's not bad. My family, family's a good thing. Whatever you'd fill that blank in, it's good. That's a good thing. But when it creates worry and fear, and, I can't, and I've got my eyes off of Jesus, even family has been elevated to a place that it can't carry that weight. I can't carry the weight of my, my, my worship. Number two, the thing I'd be most worried about never attaining is what? Again, these may not be idols as you fill them out, but it's good to be aware. It's really good to be aware. The thing I'd be most worried about never attaining is what? And for me, the thing I'm most worried about as I've reflected on this, I've had a little more time than the rest of you, and I'm going to be vulnerable this morning, is success. But let me define success for you because immediately we think career in this country. For me, when I say success, I oftentimes think about the end of my life. And when I look back on my life, well, I have been, I, I can't even tell, I get, I get a little emotional saying it out loud. I want to be a good dad. Like, so bad. I want to be a good husband, so bad. And I want to be a good pastor at this church, so bad. And sometimes, during seasons, the thought, of never attaining that can be detrimental, which means it's become an idol. Again, being a good dad and a good husband and a good pastor, it's not bad. Those are good things. But when they become the source of my identity or my value, they control too much. I'm enslaved to them. So now when I'm having a bad day or, or things don't go well at the church, now all of a sudden I wear that heavier on my shoulders. Or when I'm at home and, and, and I snap at the kids, the guilt sometimes can be so overwhelming during that. Or when the very few times, <laughs> maybe more than few, that Sarah and I are speaking a different language, mainly hers is clear and mine is gibberish. I can beat myself up over that. Why? Because I've elevated this, this idea of being successful. We all have them. And if you're like, nope, never been there, bless you. Uh, the rest of us have <laughs> So, so what is it for you? Number three, 
If I could change blank about myself right now, I would. If I could change this thing about me, the career, the house that you live in, if I could change where we live and just have a better house, man, I'd feel so much better about it. If I could just get this next thing, or is it your body, your image? Will you look? Fill in the blank. Number four, throughout your life, what have you been most willing to sacrifice for? Again, these are good things that we answer the questions with, right? But throughout your life, what is it that you've been willing to sacrifice for? Worship and sacrifice go hand in hand every single time, no matter what. You will always be willing to sacrifice for the thing that you're worshiping, always. So what is it that you're worshiping? Again, I sacrifice oftentimes for my definition of success. So there are seasons where I can work too long here at the church. There are other seasons where I can overspend because I want the kids to see me a certain way or we can overdo certain things. Or, look, fill in the blank, but there are times where I'm willing to sacrifice for my vision of success and not the very good gift that God has given. Number five, what has made you the most bitter in life? What has made you the most bitter in life? What got taken away from you that you can't get over? Passed up for a promotion that you feel like you deserved and so you've held on to this bitterness? Is it because the people that are closest to you don't recognize how great you are and how great you have been and so your husband doesn't see it and your kids don't see it or your wife doesn't see it and the kids aren't recognizing just how great you've been and how hard you've been trying? So this bitterness forms in you. Look, bitterness almost always points to something heavy on our heart that might have been elevated to a place of being ultimate. Number six, you can see how fun this is to walk through with everybody. What is it that you can't forgive? Like, what is it that you have a hard time forgiving? The Christian counselor David Polison said this. He said, the inability to forgive is almost always connected to an idol that you think somebody robbed you of. What is it that happened that you, you feel like got taken from you and you're like, I can't forgive that? And look, I've been with this one too. This one was hard for me because there's been things that have happened to me in my life that I've had a hard time forgiving people for. And that forgiveness is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to let go of. And here's the thing. Forgiveness, it, 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 it's attached to real pain. Don't hear this wrong. It's not like you go home today and you're like, I forgive everybody. Boom. It's like, no, it's real. It's messy. Forgiveness is messy because pain is real and pain is messy. And it is hard to forgive people at times. But here's the thing. If you're not careful, the pain you're experiencing can itself become the idol that tells you who you are. Next one. What is it that you're willing to lie for? Not die for, but lie for. Very few of us lie for fun. <laughs> like it's not super enjoyable. Almost all the time when you're lying, you're protecting an idol. Your image, you're protecting your reputation, you're protecting your money, you're protecting something. In order to lie, you're protecting some sort of an idol that has given you the false idea that you need to protect it because it is your source of identity. I figured in my life over the years, I've had a propensity to bend the truth in connection to my desire to be successful, to exaggerate accomplishments, to underplay failures, just bend it just enough to make it look the way I need it to look so I can feel the way I think I need to feel. Again, being vulnerable here, but what is it for you? that tempts you to bend the truth. Number eight, where do you turn for comfort 
See, when things go wrong and life throws you a curveball, and Jesus promised us it would, Matthew chapter 7, he said, the storms will come. Later on, he said, hey, in this world, you will have trouble. And so when we walk through difficulty, when we walk through pain, when we feel lonely, when we feel discouraged, when we've walked through tragedy and agony, where do you turn for comfort? What's your first turn to comfort? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's your ability to fix it. I can fix this. I'll plan better. I'll redo something. I can, and you just put it all on yourself. And maybe you've discovered what I did and have and continue to discover in my life. This idol of comfort, where I turn for comfort, the idol of comfort continually is over-committed, over under-delivered. Under Somehow, if I can just get comfortable, my life is going to be better, and it's not always. And the last one is this. Whose approval is it that you're seeking? There is someone or some group, right, that you're longing to hear, well done, like good job. And it's hard, right? Can I tell you that's the hardest part of ministry for me? I've, I've been a Christian for 18 years, and I've been in some form of ministry for about 15 of those 18 years. And one of the things that breaks my heart more than anything else in all of my experience in ministry is to sit across the table from a guy who has worked his entire life just wanting his dad to say good job. And it's controlled everything. You sit and you do marriage counseling and all the wife wants to do is to be noticed by the husband. And it's become this thing that without it, I cannot go on. Where do you find your deepest sense of approval? Because our culture will give you a thousand different sources. And the Apostle Paul rips his clothes and I can just see him running up to us the church in America specifically, and saying, what are you doing? Remember, he, this isn't legalism for him. He wasn't being legalistic. And the apostle Paul approached him. Remember, he said, he rips his clothes. He's grieving. And he rips his clothes and he approaches them. He says, friends, friends, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I can see him doing the same thing here. All he wanted them to do is to see you can be free from the enslavement that you've lived for so long. You can be free from this, from these masters that you continually feel like you have to go to in order to get what you need. But you've already been told you're enough in the gospel. You've already been told you're valuable with the gospel message. You have what it takes because Jesus had what it took. You have everything that you could ever need because Jesus came before you and he loved you and he sacrificed for you. That's not what they wanted. Because they learned, too, idols don't die easy. Idols love to be worshipped. And they don't die easy. And they're not going to go away just because you want them to go away. You can't just remove an idol. You have to replace it with worship. You don't just get rid of it. It'll come right back or be replaced with something else even without you wanting it to. You have to intentionally choose to put Jesus in the place of the idol that you're removing. And that's not easy. Look at how these people responded at the end. Look at verse 18. Even with these words, the Apostle Paul pleading with them, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. They didn't want to stop. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowd. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, Barnabas, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. So they didn't want to hear it. They, they, they chose for themselves slavery over freedom. And they said no. And they got violent and they beat him. And for Paul, he gets beaten to the point where the people beating him actually thought he was dead. Dead enough to walk away. 
And they say, he must be dead and we're leaving. That's how bad this was. And he gets up and he doesn't say, man, I'm done with missionary journeys. And I'm done with this. He gets up and he modeled what he had just preached. And he said, the source of my comfort, the source of my value, the source of my worth is Jesus. He's worth it. And he goes. He goes on to the next. See, these people didn't want that though. They chose, they chose, they made a decision. We want slavery over freedom. And look, every single day we have the same choice. Will we continue to be enslaved by the things that will overpromise and undercommit, underdeliver? Or will we choose freedom and allow Jesus to begin stripping these idols away from our hearts? Every day we have a choice. To steal the words of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard, difficult truth. Man, this was not an easy sermon, God. But thank you that you come through every single time. Thank you, God, that you are the source of our value and our worth. That you prove to us that we, no matter what we've gone through on earth, our Heavenly Father has said, because he spoke it to Jesus, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. When we are in Christ, we have everything that we need. But God, we live in a world that wants to convince us otherwise. And we have an enemy who's waiting who's just waiting for any opportunity. And so my prayer would be that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us, empower us to choose each day to serve Jesus. Thank you for the gathering. Thank you for the scattering. And as we go our separate ways, Father, would you use us to impact your kingdom? And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.